Good morning. It is uh, 10.07 and uh, U.S. household debt is up. We'll get around to that a little later in the hour, but uh, we kick this segment of the program off with Dr. Murray Sabrin, Ph.D. economist. He, uh, he is a professor. He is an immigrant only in America. Guy comes here when he's a kid and ends up being an influencer. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, Murray, welcome to the program. How are you? Very well, thank you, uh, Gary. It's always a pleasure to be with you on Wednesday morning. And I do appreciate having you on. Morgan Stanley strategist said that stocks uh, are going to take their largest annual nosedive since the Great Recession. Um, corporate profit estimates are still too high. Uh, equity risk premium is at its lowest since the run-up to 2008. Could be a, a big hit. Uh, and I got a message. I, I front sold that you were going to be on, and uh, Eric said, uh, Gary, uh, great show today, very informative. I have a question for Mr. Sabrin. Uh, looking at the data, it does show that the stock market is going to take a significant dive, most likely in the first or second quarter of this year. My question is, how long do you think this downturn will last? So first, Murray, do you think we're going to head, you know, we're going to head into that abyss? Well, I've been following the stock market for a long, long time, and nothing surprises me. The uh, crash of 87, uh, I remember it vividly. The uh, market was down 22% in one day. That would take the market down about 7,000 points today if we had a similar crash like we had in October of 1987. But then what did the Fed do, which is, which is what it typically does when you have a financial crisis? It pumps money into the into the uh, financial markets, and the stock market went sideways for several months. And then we had the big uh, bull market rally uh, from there on. And then, of course, in uh, 2020, with the COVID lockdowns, the market went down 35% in, I think, six weeks, which is the fastest decline in the Dow Jones uh, ever. And then, of course, the Fed came in, pumped money in by the trillions, and we're off to another bull market, which uh, ended uh, a year ago when the market peaked in January of 2022. Uh, and so I wouldn't be surprised surprised if we have another major downturn. I'm not predicting it. I'm not that smart. But anything is possible because it really depends on how people perceive future earnings and how high the Fed raises interest rates. Remember, in uh, 87, the, uh, the Federal Reserve was raising interest rates throughout the year. And uh, then in September, October, things started to unwind. And we had that one day crash on October 19th. So can we have something similar to that? Yes, we've had uh, declines in March of uh, in previous years. Uh, October is not very good, the crash of 29, the crash of uh, uh, 2020. So uh, March and October are two months where the market has uh, serious uh, uh, problems and uh, March is right around the corner. So we'll see what unfolds in March. If you just turn the radio on, Dr. Murray Sabrin is with us uh, and you gotta get his book. Uh, we'll talk about that book in a second. But, uh, Murray, here's, here's what I see. If I look back at this, um, we raise the interest rates to slow inflation, and we have a recession. The market crashes, and then we throw a whole bunch more money out there, and the market picks up, and then we have inflation, and then the market crashes, and it seems like the swings are getting bigger and bigger. Am I, am I on to anything here? 
Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, the, the, the Great Recession of 2007-2009, the, the stock market went down about 50%. Um, like the 2020 lockdown was not a, a typical business cycle downturn because it was caused by the government closing down the economy. So when you stop commerce, uh, businesses are going to uh, fall in terms of their earnings and profitability. And the stock market is, is very unnerving, uh, unnerved about that. And so people ran for the hills and, uh, and dumped their stocks and we had a major decline. And so uh, the question is, how, how close will these downturns occur? Because um, if you look historically since uh, the end of World War II, every year ending in zero has been a recession year except 2010 when the recession came earlier in 2007-2008. So uh, following that uh, formula, if you will, or observation, uh, we could have a major downturn at the end of this decade uh, in 2030. In fact, um, if you look at the in the 1920s, which is really an interesting case study, because that's the first decade of the Federal Reserve's full operation, we had a, a series of uh, minor recessions in the 1920s, and the Fed kept on pumping money in and blew up the stock market, and then the market crashed 89% from 1929 to 1932. And so uh, we have had an 89% decline, but we did have the uh, NASDAQ, the dot-com bubble. Uh, the NASDAQ declined 80% from 2001 to 2002. So uh, we can have these major declines in the stock market. In fact, if you look at some of the high flyers during COVID that benefited from the lockdown, some of them crashed 80 and 90%. And we're now seeing Bed Bath & Beyond on the verge of bankruptcy. The stock's about $2 a share. And uh, they've announced uh, major losses. So you're seeing companies that are getting st stiff competition from the Amazons of the world, from uh, the Targets of the world, the Costco's of the world, and they just don't have the good product mix or customers are not flocking to them. So Bed Bath & Beyond is a great case study of a retailer uh, being unwound here, which has been around, what, 60 years, I think. So uh, there are companies that are making money hand over fist because they have products and services that people value. And that's really the essence of a market economy is what do people value? What do they think is a, is a good thing to buy in the marketplace? And so um, there are companies that are thriving now that, uh, well, we know the energy companies, uh, their stocks went through the roof last year. They were the best performing uh, sector of the US economy because oil prices uh, skyrocketed throughout the year. And so there's always a bull market somewhere and there's always a bear market somewhere. But in general, right now we're in a bear market. And the question is how much further down does it have to go before you get a total washout where people are so pessimistic that is the end of the bear market. And that has happened throughout uh, my lifetime. Uh, I can think of that December 1974, uh, uh, 2003, uh, 2009. And so these things happen and it's just a matter of time when the next uh, major downturn occurs. I don't know if it's going to be this year, Gary. I think... Uh, uh, we just have to uh, be, be patient and, and watch this unfold. But right now, people have to make a decision with how to allocate their portfolio, whether it's bonds, stocks, a combination, uh, some of it in money market funds because they're yielding 4%, which is the first time we've had uh, interest rates that are above zero. But here's the interesting point about uh, this, and, and few people are talking about it. Despite the Federal Reserve raising interest rates, interest rates are still below the rate of inflation. So we're getting, so uh, savers are getting a negative return on their savings. 
which is not very good for savers because the price is going up 7% and you're earning 4% on your on your savings in the bank or the money market account, uh, you're still underwater because uh, the Federal Reserve uh, hasn't raised rates in order to uh, give us real interest rates, which is what Volcker did 40 years ago. And uh, we had, uh, I remember getting 16% on my money market fund in 1981. Wow. That was the peak of interest rates. And then uh, interest rates started to decline because inflation went from 12% in 1981 down to 3% in 1983. So Volcker... Uh, caused a lot of pain in the economy because he wanted to get inflation under control, and that's exactly what happened. So are you arguing that that we need to do that again? We need to crank the interest rates higher? Well, this is, the, this is I think, the conundrum that the Federal Reserve is facing is what they're doing is trying to micromanage the interest rates in order to uh, get inflation down. And the best way to get inflation down is to, for them to stop printing money, which apparently they have, because the broad uh, uh, definition of the money supply, M2, which is cash and savings accounts and money market accounts, uh, this, that's starting to decline. So we should see inflation coming down, which we have the last few months. The, uh, we peaked at 9% year over year in the summer. Now we're down to 7%, and the, uh, the CPI numbers come out next week, so we'll get a sense of what happened in December, a picture for the full year of 2022. So inflation is starting to uh, calm down because gasoline prices have come down, um, housing prices have come down. But I just saw uh, an article in the local paper here in Southwest Florida, uh, rents in southwest florida have gone through the roof because uh for a whole variety of reasons there aren't enough rental properties out there for people to uh to, uh, to uh, uh rent and um municipalities are making it very difficult for developers to build rental units and the other thing that that's interesting in the article is a lot of these condominium developments uh gated communities are not allowing people to rent their houses or apartments. Uh, so the homeowners association are taking a lot of properties off the market because there are a lot of snowbirds down here in Florida. And uh, when they're here in the winter time, they're living there. But when they're not here, uh, seven, eight months of the year, they can rent those properties out. But some communities don't allow that to happen. And so you have a shortage of uh, uh, housing that incredibly high in this part of the country. I never thought we'd see rent so high. And we moved down here a little over a year and a half ago. And um, uh, But people want to come to Florida, as you know, New York State and uh, Illinois and California. And uh, other states are making it very difficult for people to stay there because of taxes, the regulation, and all the political nonsense that goes on in these blue states. Dr. Murray Sabrin, Ph.D., uh, economist, uh, on board with us this morning. So the bottom line is uh, the, the vacillations continue. Uh, they print the money. We have the inflation. Then they raise the interest rates. You have the recession. And then to get us out of the recession, they print the money. And it keeps going back and forth. Uh, and, and it seems like wilder and wilder swings. Will there be a recession? Well, it looks like it, but nobody can say for sure. Have I got that right? Well, I think we're, we're on the verge of recession because one of the indicators that I follow, Gary, is the uh, yield curve. That's when short-term rates and long-term rates, you compare how high they are. And in every uh, period before recession, short-term rates go above long-term rates, which is what happened a few months ago. And typically, that, is, that leads the recession by about a year. 
So I expect the recession to occur sometime in 2023. And the question is, can it be averted? Well, the only incident that I know where that happened was in, uh, well, two incidents. In 1966, uh, short-term rates went above long-term rates, but we didn't have a recession because the Fed pivoted quickly because Johnson, President Johnson, uh, badgered the chairman of the Federal Reserve to uh, not raise interest rates, and that's exactly what happened. So the Federal Reserve is not as independent as people say they are. And then in 1998, uh, because of the financial crisis overseas in Asia, uh, the yield curve inverted, but the Fed came in because of Y2K, and they pumped a lot of money in, which, uh, which exacerbated the dot-com bubble in the late 90s. So again, the Fed tries to micromanage the economy, uh, Gary, and we know they just cannot achieve that. They don't believe in free markets. They don't believe in interest rates being set by the marketplace. They don't believe that uh, wages and prices should be set by buyers and sellers and employers and employees. They think they can micromanage the economy by manipulating interest rates, and that's a fool's errand. And uh, I and other uh, free market economists have been uh, have been uh, sounding, the, uh, beating the drums on this for a long, long time. And apparently they haven't gotten the message in D.C. Apparently they have not. Dr. Murray Sabrin, uh, he's got a book, From Immigrant to Public Intellectual, An American Story. From Immigrant to Public Intellectual, An American Story. Get the book. What a fascinating history. Murray, thank you for being with us. Great to be with you, Gary. Look forward to next week. All right. Take care. Glad to have you with us. Nationally, we are going in debt. I'll give you some details next on the Gary Nolan Show, the Zimmer Radio Network. It is uh, 24 minutes after the hour. We're talking with uh, Dr. Murray Sabrin a few minutes ago, economist and author, uh, and he uh, was a, a professor of economics, about the economy. And uh, before I get into uh, U.S. household debt, Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell cautioned that institutions like the Fed have to resist the temptation to try to tackle social issues like climate change. He said this in a speech in uh, Sweden on Tuesday. They'll fire him tomorrow. Powell gave his remarks to a forum on the uh, Central Bank Independence sponsored by the Swedish Central Bank. And uh, he's telling them, don't do this. Uh we can't afford it. It's just, you know, it's it's driving us uh, broke. I'm sure that'll cost him his job uh, somewhere down the road. But they are driving us broke. The inflation is killing us. U.S. household debt is now up to $16.5 trillion. Uh, a nerd wallet study found the average household owes more than $165,000 in debt. That's a lot of money. Um, so here's what we, here's the takeaway. Uh, the the uh, number means that the average U.S. household owes more than 165 grand, while the average student loan debt is down. Mortgages, auto loans, and overall debt are up. The average U.S. household owes more than 165 grand. The amount of average household debt has pushed the national total. To sixteen and a half trillion, that's a seven point six five percent increase from a year before. Hey, Brian, isn't that close to the inflation rate? Yes, it is. Isn't that a coincidence? Yeah, yeah. People want to feed their families; they're putting it on their credit card. Study crafters also found that the credit card balances carried 
from month to month have gone up over the past year, now totaling roughly $460 billion. You do not want to get in that cycle. Credit card debt is just vicious. Mortgages, auto loans, overall debt also went up in the last 12 months. Meanwhile, student loan amounts uh, dropped a bit, according to the study. The average household owed about two hundred twenty-two thousand in mortgages, seventeen grand in credit card debt, and twenty-nine thousand in auto loans last year. How do they survive that? How do you survive seventeen thousand dollars in credit card debt? I have no idea, but some of these folks that get in certain situations rely on credit cards and. Just think, oh, I'll pay it off at another time once I have income. But that <laughs> the interest, you know, swallows you up. Nerd Wallet's uh, uh, credit card expert Sarah Rather uh, Rathner said consumers are feeling the squeeze of higher prices and interest rates, and paychecks just aren't keeping up. That's forcing many to make tough decisions, like going into debt to pay for necessities. Because they used to say, well, it's just frivolous spending. You know, they got a credit card, went out and bought a whole bunch of stuff they don't need. But that isn't the case. Um, the average U.S. household owed fifty-eight grand in student loans, six-tenths of a percent decrease from the year before. But everything else going up. And pay is, 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 is not keeping up. In fact, Brian, uh, you know that uh, increase that I got in uh, pay because of Obamacare? Uh-huh. Um, yeah. Did you get your uh, check? Uh, well, I actually, no. Huh. Uh, but the, even that wouldn't have been enough to offset. It's kind of weird. I didn't get mine either. Really? We ought to talk to HR about I, that. I will call them today. Because the, you know, the Obamians promised we would get this money, this, right. this cut in cost. $2,500 savings. Yeah. And I haven't seen it yet. Uh, no. It just I must haven't. be an oversight. Yeah, I, we, we'll, we'll call after the show and, yeah. and we'll chat with them. They surveyed more than 2,000 U.S. adults to gauge how people um, uh, about their debt and future finances. The findings of the poll were used in this study. Whew. That's all right. Uh, you, just, you just keep those big government programs going. You just keep printing that cash. We'll, we'll survive this somehow. Uh, of course, we really we won't. We've broken the Ted Commandments. Eight seven four ninety three ninety eight hundred five two nine five five seven two. That gets you into the studio. Also, uh, you can get us uh, by going to GaryNolan dot com. You send a message, pops up right here in studio. Uh, some trans people are threatening, and I read their threat. And I'm thinking, well, maybe I'll, maybe I'll help them. You, you probably think that's outrageous that I would never do such a thing, but I, I, think, I think maybe I will. Uh, also, uh, U.S. intelligence materials related to Ukraine, Iran, and U.K. founded Biden's private office. Uh, we talked about this briefly yesterday. Uh, we do have a few more details on it today. Um, and then uh, these, these flights, all canceled. 
Let me tell you what I'm going to do for the transgenders next on the Gary Nolan Show. Zimmer Radio Network. This is the Gary Nolan Show. It's 10:35. I looked up at the uh, at the monitor on my side, and it's got Fox News. Democrats looking to lower the, vo- lower the voting age. I told you about this last year. That's their goal. Uh, they want 16 year olds to vote because they've got so much life experience. You can you can count on them, boy. They know. Uh, in the meantime, uh, Ryan uh, and I'll go to the phones here in just a second. Callers, hang on, just just take a second because I'm going to help some transgenders here. Uh, Ryan Willogs uh, is a 50-year-old transgender. He's a guy who thinks he's a girl and wears girly clothes. And he has been researching ways to flee the United States. He, he just he doesn't feel safe here. And so he's come up with a, uh, a group called Transport to help... <laughs> Yeah, uh, I'm sorry. Um, you you scoff at, at the pain, uh, but anyway, uh, he says it's a hostile national climate, and it inspired him to start Transport, a budding nonprofit that seeks to help trans people transition, navigate bureaucratic maze, bureaucratic mazes, and ultimately to finance their journey. As they flee the country. And Brian, I'm thinking of giving them some money so they can get the hell out. Yeah. You know, either you get fixed uh, or you get going. Just a thought. Again, I don't care what you do. You want to wear a dress, guys, wear a dress. You 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 want to pretend you're a guy, ladies, uh, go ahead and do it. Be over 18 before you get any surgery or a permanent scarring. And don't expect me or anybody else... To accept you as you present yourself or to cater to your mental illness by calling you a sex that you are not. After that, I don't care. But if you're going to force it down my throat, let me help you out of the country. Uh, on uh, Social Security, Alan is on the line. Alan, welcome. How are you? Yeah, Gary. Um, I'm, I'm just kind of surprised that that you don't don't uh, haven't thought about the fact that just because the government has called something for decades doesn't make it true. I mean, Social Security has never been a retirement prog- program. So if, what's your point, Alan? Well, if if you take from people who are working and give it to people who aren't working, what do you call call that? Yeah, it's a welfare program. It's a welfare program. So there is no money. So you keep talking about if you'd have, you don't talk about the welfare money that you paid paid out over your life lifetime and getting that back. Yeah, and Alan. I, nobody nobody pays their federal income tax and thinks they're entitled to welfare because of that. But they pay their FICA tax because they think they're entitled to get that money back. Well, that's because it's a scam, and yeah. it's been a scam from the beginning. Yes. Absolutely. Well, we agree, but yeah. but but don't expect to get it back because you're you're it's not it's not a doable deal because the only if, and when I was in high school in the seventies, my math teacher sat down and we did the math back then, and and it couldn't possibly pay out even then. 
because of so many, there were so few, so many people working at the time compared to people who retired, and now the the tables have totally flipped. Yeah, that's right. It's exactly right. Yeah, they so, took all that extra money and they spent it. Yeah, I agree, and and so it's not, it's not a retirement program. It's well, welfare. Yeah, it, it's not even. It's, I don't like getting taken welfare, but I don't have have much choice. It's. I liken it to walking through the parking lot at a shopping center, and somebody walks up behind you, puts a gun in your back, and takes the money out of your wallet. And your response is to get your gun out, walk up to the next person in front of you, and take the money out of their wallet. That's that's what we've been doing for decades. Yep. And it's yeah. in trouble. All right, Alan, thank you. Glad to, glad to have you on the Gary Nolan Show. Um, there are ways to control the environment, to really clean it up. And most of those, the, the most effective way is to give people the power to protect their own environment. Um, and you do this by giving them, for instance, the water rights to their, uh, the fishing rights to their waterfront property. So if you own a piece of property uh, that is uh, adjacent to the Cuyahoga River in Cleveland or Lake Erie or whatever polluted uh, body of water you want, they can sue everybody upstream that is responsible for polluting the water. Uh, and that gets very expensive for polluters. But instead, what we did, and literally it is the result of the Cuyahoga River catching fire. Uh, Ralph Perk, I think, was the mayor. They were doing some kind of a uh, ceremony, and and uh, I think his hair caught on fire. The the river caught on fire, and uh, and so Richard Nixon signs this EPA bill, which he had no business doing. If they really wanted to give people, uh, you know, the ability to control and clean up the environment, they should do what they did in Great Britain, and that's give them the fishing rights, their waterfront property. If your property is devalued because of air pollution, you should be able to sue. But you can't. you got to rely on the federal government. And the federal government has all kinds of grandfathered-in clauses. Uh, somebody maybe wants to fix the stack on their uh, steel-melting, uh, smelting plant. They don't want to replace the whole thing. It's an improvement, but they can't do it because the federal government will punish them. Federal government say, well, if you do this, you got to do it all. And so they say, well, well, then we won't do anything. And nothing gets cleaner. That's just the way the government works. But so you know, I don't care if you're talking California or Cleveland, the environment was getting cleaner every year before the Environmental Protection Agency was created. It was already getting better every year. Um, but now we got the EPA. And, of course, they think they have a mandate. And the, least, uh, the latest uh, problem is this waterways legislation uh, that, that they've created for themselves. And here's a sad tale of, oh, the story is up at Reason Magazine. I'll play part of this for you. Uh, these people have a, a piece of property <laughs> that they've had to go to the Supreme Court twice. Twice. Uh, to protect. It's a case that started 15 years ago with a couple living in a small town in Idaho. When I was in high school, I was up there camping 
and fell in love with Priest Lake and just had to try and figure out how to live there. There's no other place you'd want to be. It is so peaceful and calm. Mike and Chantel Sackett purchased a tract of land abutting an easement, which guaranteed them a prime view of Priest Lake. They plan to leverage their background in construction to build the lakefront home of their dreams. A few days into construction, the Sacketts received a surprise visit from the EPA and Army Corps of Engineers. They walked onto the property and said, you need to stop work immediately, and he said, why? They said, because we think you're filling in wetlands. The wetlands the government's agents were referring to was a residential lot in an established subdivision with a full sewer hookup 100 yards from the lake and a county title with no indication of wetland status. There was a nearby ditch draining into a stream that connected to the lake. It was separated from the lot by 30 feet of paved road. The proximity of the Sackett's land to the ditch, in addition to the existence of a subterranean water flow discovered beneath their lot as they began construction, meant that their residential lot was a federally protected wetland, according to the EPA. Although the Sackett's faced up to $75,000 a day for violation of the Clean Water Act and the compliance order, the EPA argued they had no right to challenge them in court until they actually took action to impose and collect the fine, which they could do retroactively at any time. With this threat looming over them, the Sacketts paused construction. The EPA also wanted the Sacketts to remove the gravel they'd poured, fence in the lot, and plant foliage, but the couple refused. We want you to fence it, and then we want you to plant these wetlands plants, and then we want you to wash it for three to five years and make notes and and we'll be able to come look at that. And I go, are you kidding me? Why would we do that? I mean, it's a lot in a subdivision. Do you want to create a wetland? <laughs> that was in 2012. The Sackett's case went all the way to the Supreme Court, which ruled unanimously that the EPA's compliance orders were indeed subject to judicial review meaning the agency couldn't retroactively fine the Sacketts for being in violation of the order as the court challenge was adjudicated. Ten years later, the Supreme Court is taking up the next part of that case, a challenge to how the agency defines a wetland. The first decision got us the right to get into court, and now we hope to finally secure that victory. Damien Schiff is an attorney with the Pacific Legal Foundation, the nonprofit law firm that is arguing the case before the Supreme Court for a second time. He says a favorable ruling could finally constrain a federal agency that routinely bullies landowners. The big picture is a dispute that's roiled the property rights and environmental law communities for half a decade, and that is the scope of the Clean Water Act. The EPA and the Army Corps, who are the agencies that administer this law, have over the last several decades used their regulatory authority to radically expand what qualifies as a water in the United States. The Clean Water Act allows the EPA to regulate all of the country's navigable waters, from rivers to lakes to streams to oceanic channels. But the definition of navigable water has steadily expanded since the act's passage in 1972. Farmers like Curtis Martin weren't allowed to add a man-made lake that increased the biodiversity of his land because EPA said it violated the act. John Duarte almost lost his farm in California's Central Valley after EPA fined him more than $30 million in restoration fees. Reason covered Duarte's story back in 2017. These federal prosecutors can come in like the sheriff in Nottingham, decide for themselves what they think a family can pay. 
decide for themselves if they want to destroy a family and take their land away. If the federal prosecutors can come on this farm with this set of facts, there is no farm in America that is safe from this kind of prosecution. The Supreme Court weighed in on the EPA's expansive authority to regulate land in a 2006 case in which the agency had tried to stop a Michigan developer named John Rapanos from turning part of his 54-acre property into a shopping mall, even though it was more than 11 miles from the nearest navigable water. Because the land became swampy in the spring as the snow melted, they argued that Rapanos' development plan would destroy protected wetlands. He sued, and a 5-4 majority vacated the ruling against Rapanos. But Justice Kennedy declined to join Scalia's plurality opinion that would have further limited the agency's regulatory authority. Scalia wrote that the standards the government sought gave the EPA and Army Corps of Engineers jurisdiction over between 270 to 300 million acres of swampy lands, including half of Alaska and an area the size of California and the lower 48 states, and that landowners spent more than $1.7 billion a year obtaining wetlands permits. Kennedy rejected Scalia's reasoning and devised the significant nexus standard which gave the government the authority to regulate the land if the pollution would significantly affect the chemical, physical, and biological integrity of nearby navigable water. Kennedy's standard carried the day in lower courts, but Schiff says it's far too ambiguous to hold any longer. So they're challenging it, and based on some of the uh, conversations that, uh, that took place in the Supreme Court hearing, it looks like they're going to take that power back. They're going to constrain it. So for the first time in who knows how long, well, actually, this is the second time now, uh, and it, let's give credit, uh, credit given where credit is due uh, because of uh, the Supreme Court uh, nominees that uh, Donald Trump and the, and the Republicans got on the, on the courts, they're going to actually rein them in. I believe, based on what I've heard, they're going to take away some of that power from the EPA. Now, that's a good thing. Better, though, that they give you that power. You're listening to The Gary Nolan Show on the Zimmer Radio Network. 1054, glad to have you with us. Brian, I, I have a confession to make, and I'll make it on the air in front of you and everybody. Yesterday, I, I cooked on my gas stove. Oh, I am calling... The feds on you. Yeah. <laughs> the guests. You are in please. so much trouble. Yes. I did. I cooked on my gas stove. <laughs> Unbelievable. All right. So we're talking about this uh, Supreme Court case that may just unravel for the uh, Environmental Protection Agency. And I'm just going to give you a taste of this. The whole thing is up at Reason Magazine. But this is Neil Gorsuch. Uh, first, we'll give you an explanation of where the government, you know, what they're leaning on. And then Gorsuch asks a couple of questions of the government, and you'll get the idea of what direction I think the court is going. It's hard to know for sure, but it, it looks to me, it makes a lot of sense to me, uh, that they're going to take away some of that power, constrain it. They point to the Clean Water Act's authorization to regulate land adjacent to protected water. But how far does adjacency extend? That question was raised by Justice Neil Gorsuch in oral arguments. Despite the fact that there's a subdivision between this property and the lake, it's still adjacent to the lake. That's the government's view. That And it's adjacent 
why? What's the definition of adjacency? I think we are talking about adjacency, and that may not be something that gives you bright line rules, but it rules out things that are many miles away. Sure the EPA would take that view? And the agencies have told me they do not draw bright line rules. They do not think 300 feet is unreasonable for adjacency. So how about 3,000 feet? I, Could I, be? I, I don't know the answer to that, Justice Could it Gorsuch? be three miles? I, I don't think it could be. Could it be two miles? That, again, when we start to talk about miles, that sounds too far to be, a, to re, be One mile? approximate to me. Again, and I, I see where this is headed, but, but again, I think... <laughs> so if the federal government doesn't know, how is a person subject to criminal time in federal prison supposed to know? So the agencies, in recognition of this problem, make available free of charge jurisdictional determinations as to any property. They also publicize their manuals and make available on websites every jurisdiction. Their manuals that don't tell us the answer. There's no doubt that an important part of water quality is wetlands regulation. I mean, nobody denies that. But the question is, is that something that Congress intended to implement at the federal level in the Clean Water Act? Now, I would argue not to that extent. Uh, 874-9390, toll-free, 800-529-5572. Uh, we'll talk about gas stoves in the next segment of the program at about 5 after uh, 11, but let me get Rick on the line. Rick, welcome. How are you? Good, Gary. Hey, thanks for taking the call. Well, you were talking about liberties and this, that, and the other uh, with the, what's going on with property rights. Um, they're trying to tell us that uh, America is a sovereign nation, and the actual truth under the Constitution America is not a sovereign nation. The people who are the residents of the United States of America, citizens, they are the sovereign ones. And, of course, this is being stolen from us piece by piece from the government. And give you an example. Since 1619 is a good number, in those years, the inhabitants of the United States of America had their birthright over time stolen and taken from them. And now we who have a birthright that were born here are having that birthright stolen from us by the federal government. Is that understandable? No, it's absolutely, it. it's way out in uh, La La Land. I'm sorry. Uh, I, look, uh, you know, I, I think we have rights. I think the Bill of Rights need to be enforced. We have a, a republic that needs to be a republic, not a democracy. Uh, but, I, you know, where you're going is so far beyond where anybody else even cares. I mean, all we want is our rights restored. We want our personal property protected. It is our home. It is our castle. We want our income protected. We don't want the government to steal it and redistribute it. We want to be able to protect ourselves. We want to be able to protect the country in the event that we have a tyrannical government over uh, overtaking us. Uh, and, and anything beyond that, it gets kind of into the weeds. Uh, Rick, thank you for the call. Gary Nolan shows Zimmer Radio Network. This is The Gary Nolan Show.